Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Mark Larratt, recently retired CEO of the University of California at San Francisco Health System. Before leading UCSF, Mark was CEO of UC Irvine, and he spent 15 years before that at UCLA. I've had the pleasure of his friendship since those early days at UCLA. Mark, congratulations on your retirement, and thanks for being with us. Uh, Tom, it's my pleasure, and it's uh, great to spend some time with you today. I promise that we're going to come around to reminiscing, but before we do, let me start out by throwing a relatively serious question at you. You and I are both old enough to remember a time before all of the mergers when healthcare was really a local enterprise. And I, I think for all the scale and sophistication that arose, I'm not sure that I'm convinced that it was all positive. What good and what not so good do you think came of all of the consolidation? And on balance, did we perhaps go too far? It's a great question, Tom. And part of the answer is that it's a mixed bag, frankly. And part of that goes back to the rationale for uh, consolidation. I know in some cases, the rationale was lower cost, or maybe it was a way to extend best practices across a larger system. Uh, But I think in other cases, the rationale was how do we get more market control so we can uh, extract higher payment rates from health plans or others. And I, I do think that when you look at the organizations that have had success, and by success, relatively uh, stable c- cost to health plans, uh, improved quality, improved access, uh, better range of services offered in uh, community hospitals or rural hospitals, I, I think the driver usually is What can we do to better serve our community? But there are so many examples where the antitrust issues get raised. Out here, we have uh, Sutter's being sued by the attorney general for what was viewed as anti-competitive activity. And I think that's when a lot of these mergers have gone gone sideways. So uh, again, a mixed bag. I'll just add one personal footnote to this. Uh, Years ago, In 2014, we brought the then Children's Hospital Oakland, which was a struggling children's hospital serving inner city Oakland into the UCSF family. And we certainly didn't do it for any good economic reasons. Uh, There was no big upside to it. But one of the things I learned the hard way is that different organizations have very different cultures. And so the approach that we might use to solving a problem or making a change or adding a service or deleting a service was very different than their history. And we ended up spending a lot more time trying to get our cultures aligned and and make sure that we were aligned in what we were trying to do. So the intended results of these mergers, I think sometimes uh, falls a little bit flat, whether it's for pro formas that were a little too optimistic or lack of appreciation of the cultural differences of the organizations. You make an extremely important point, and I'd like to jump on that for just a quick second. When you talk about the cultural issues, I'm suspicious that that's probably got something to do with an unmet promise of of some of the system formation. You know, if you read the press release of almost anybody coming together or expanding, you'll see the phrase, the right care at the right place at the right time. It's just kind of this ubiquitous phrase that shows up in everybody's uh, press release. And yet, 
when it comes time to do some serious clinical consolidation where you've got five clinical programs that really ought to be three, and you might have some high-risk surgery going on in places that maybe don't meet the minimum volumes for, for proficiency thresholds, doing that hard work, that's where some of these systems, I think, have, have kind of fallen a bit short of expectations. What do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I think it's always worth remembering that when you uh, eliminate a service, you're eliminating somebody's income. There's a group of people who were invested in that program who believe in it, and that becomes a big challenge to to manage. And then a lot of organizations just throw up their hands and don't do it. So the challenges are very significant, particularly since many of these hospitals that are being acquired are on the fringe financially anyway. They probably wouldn't have been in play if they were strong. So there are big changes that are going to be needed. And uh, I think we do tend to underestimate the cultural challenge of bringing a whole new mindset and an operating approach to it. I think in the for-profit world, the public company world, they're very clear. We're taking over. We're in charge. We're going to right size. We're going to lay off people. That's the end of the story. But I think in not-for-profit healthcare, we've been probably too indirect, too genteel. We've wanted to do the right thing for everybody, the community. And as a result, we end up with a mixed bag of results. Well observed. I wouldn't make an argument necessarily for the proprietary approach to, to things, but I wish that those of us in healthcare sometimes had just a little bit sharper edge to the way that we make decisions because patients can get caught in the gaps if we're not careful. There's no question about that. And we make a lot of decisions, particularly those of us in academic medicine, to support programs and initiatives that are at best indirectly related to improving the health care of, of patients. But we do it because it, it furthers the academic mission and a long-term promise that the result of that academic work leads to ultimately better care. But uh, we do struggle a bit with all that. I rarely get a chance to, to talk to someone who's not anymore right in the middle of their day job. And this is a unique opportunity for me to ask you a couple of questions that I've been dying to ask you. And I'm going to ask you to exclude the pandemic for a moment because it's all we've been talking about for a couple of years. But if I asked you to look back over your career, and if I asked you, Mark, what are some of the biggest surprises that you had over the course of your career and maybe a couple of your proudest moments, again, outside of COVID? Well, I'll give you two surprises, a big one and a little one. The big one is that, as you referenced, I started my career at UCLA Medical Center, and I was the first head of managed care contracting then, probably when you and I really got to know each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, my biggest surprise is that uh, what I predicted back then is that we would be fully capitated by now. Fee-for-service medicine would be dead. I, heck, I predicted that by the 90s and then by the 2000s. And probably by 2010, I stopped doing my forecasting because it was so incredibly inaccurate. Uh, but that remains a big surprise to me. About five years ago, we started a health plan in Northern California, UCSF, partnering with John Muir Health and physician groups in the area. Uh, with the idea that we would partner with existing health plans, but it would be a way for us to take population health risk, to make sure that we were getting good at that, learning that, given that uh, it seemed that Medicare uh, was moving in the direction of Medicare Advantage, so forth. 
And I will say the biggest surprise to me is how reticent the big employers are to embrace population health. I've gone on sales calls with our Canopy team and United Health, and the employers, they're interested in how big is the primary care network, uh, what kind of disruption are their employees going to face if they change health plans. Uh, they're into, and I think post-COVID, they're going to be into how do we create the best possible set of healthcare options for our employees so our employees feel that they are not being limited in the care that they receive. And of course, part of the idea of population health is that we do manage patients' care with the goal of getting patients to the right place at the right time at the right cost level. So it has been a surprise to me how slow that's been. And maybe it will pick up with growth in Medicare Advantage over time. But at this point, it's still surprisingly slow. I'll say the other thing, just as you mentioned about my retirement, uh, over the last uh, few months before the end of the calendar year, I visited every part of the organization one more time, 15,000 employees. And, and uh, it, was, it was very touching for me. But one of the surprises to me was how important some of the littlest things that I would have thought I would say that I did mattered to those employees. And one of them was uh, I had made the decision when I came to UCSF that I was going to do every new employee orientation, talk about mission, vision, values, goals, uh, what our hopes were for their employees, how to think about decision making. And I've done that for the last 21 years. And people mentioned that over and over again, how important that was. And I you know, I, I guess I have to say I'm really proud of the fact that I did it. Uh, it wasn't always convenient to do it, but it was an opportunity to share some advice I got when I was a young hospital administrator by uh, the grizzled old veteran chief operating officer of UCLA Medical Center, Aaron Lohr. And he said, Mark, you're going to get so many decisions put in front of you, especially when you're administrator on call. You're going to get so many decisions where you just don't know what to do. And he said, the answer is, always do what is in the best interest of the patient. And I pass that on to every new employee and I got that fed back to me so many times. So I have to say that was a surprise and a gratifying one. You asked about proudest moments. Gosh, you know, I have a long career, so I've got a lot of them, whether it was from being able to acquire the Santa Monica Hospital to UCLA after the Northridge earthquake. It was a, a big stretch, but it was uh, a huge win for UCLA. When I went to UC Irvine, they had been in the midst of some very difficult scandals. There was a, the big fertility mess uh, where doctors were taking eggs from younger women and implanting them in older women and so forth. It was awful. And we worked to focus on doing the right thing. And, and we made our joint commission scoring the most important thing for a period. And we got almost a perfect score. It was just a great psychological moment. And coming to UCSF, we were in a big financial turnaround. Uh, that was gratifying to get out of that. That's when I remembered the words of a, a regent of the University of California, David Lee. David Lee was the person who invented the mechanism on calculators for doing square root. He said, it's really not that hard if you learn your math on an abacus, uh, which he <laughs> did. But uh, David Lee said to me, you know, the problem is people forget that healthcare is a high dollar low margin business. And so you just need to tweak your expenses a little bit, your revenue a little bit, 
your sponsor mix, your clinical mix a little bit, and you'll have results. And that's what we did at UCSF and, and had good results. We went on to build a new hospital uh, complex down at Mission Bay, raised uh, $600 million. I can practically tell you where every one of those dollars came from. It was an ordeal, but it was a great way to build uh, our relationship with the community. And then most recently, building a network of affiliated physician groups and hospitals throughout the region. But if you really get down to it, I mean, what really matters is that employee who came in at a low level and worked their way up to being a medical assistant and a LVN and an RN and now is leading a unit or our administrative fellows program that focused on women and uh, people of color out of grad school, bringing them in and now seeing them running some of our clinics or other operations. And then obviously those patients who have uh, a great experience and a great outcome. That's in the end, the greatest satisfaction you can ever ask for. Well, you've had extraordinary impact in any number of those settings. I reflect back on your days uh, at Irvine and I Boy, I just remember feeling kind of a kinship to you when you went there. I knew what you were getting into and boy, what you left compared to what you walked into is just an extraordinary thing. So congratulations on that. I'd like to follow up real quickly, but your surprise over the absence of capitation, I have to tell you, you'll probably remember the 25 years ago when you were there and I was here. I would have probably been on the other side of that margin transaction with you. I would have been shorting capitation while you were taking a long position on it. Me having come out of health plans and seen how little people have a tolerance for restricting their access. And that's what I want to touch on here is access. One of the things that I've been struck by very recently, and it's going to find its way into our work, and I just kind of came to a realization that the market, which we've been using to uh, govern the distribution of healthcare services and its prices, the market actually creates disparities. It doesn't solve for them. And as a country, we're right now, we abhor these health disparities and poor access. And I'm scratching my head saying, how did we miss this? We set ourselves up for this because a market by definition has haves and have nots and the haves bid the prices up higher than the have-nots can afford, and you end up getting disparities by virtue of a market. So I'm of a mind that healthcare really aspires to be what an economist would call a common good rather than a private good, but we've financed it and we've governed its distribution through the market, which is really set up for a private good. And by common good, I'm talking about something like clean water, where we say, if you can't afford it, we still want you to have it. And so we probably regulate its prices and control it a little bit. Do you think I'm crazy? I don't think you're crazy. And especially after you were right on capitation, I shouldn't be betting against you now <laughs> uh, for sure. But no, I think you're absolutely right. And this is the, the problem with how our healthcare system has evolved, which some people may remember uh, Rube Goldberg. I don't actually even know what Rube Goldberg, what he did or what he was responsible for, but he came up with crazy ways to solve problems. And mm -hmm. it feels like that's what we have with our healthcare system. So that side of service differential payments make no sense to almost anybody outside of healthcare, mm -hmm. but it was a mechanism for solving a problem that hospitals had serving the underserved 
uh, and not being reimbursed for them. 340B makes no sense uh, for a lot of people, but it's cost shifting in different ways. So I, I completely agree. And I, I've spent a lot of time trying to think through how do we get to a better place, a more rational place. You mentioned access. Uh, when I first started my career doing managed care contracting, Blue Cross of California was a not-for-profit. And its responsibility was to try to insure as many Californians as possible. And then they made a decision that they wanted to go public and ultimately became part of Anthem. And now Anthem Blue Cross of California's highest priority is to optimize shareholder return. So you're right. It's absolutely antithetical to the idea of improving access or reducing disparities. My feeling is that if we're close to 20% GDP today, you know, I don't know at what point the pain becomes too great. Maybe it's 25, maybe it's at 30%, but at some point there's going to be a major realignment. And at that moment, that's when I hope that we will take the bull by the horns and say, let's really rethink how this healthcare system is working, uh, because most of us will be in some kind of distress at that point if the federal government makes some draconian cuts uh, or if employer groups make uh, very significant reductions in what they pay uh, and don't support the, uh, the cost shifting that we've had for so many years. It feels to me like at some point there is going to be an opportunity and hopefully the kind of work that you do, Tom, and that Vizient does in laying out options for how this system could work better, uh, maintain the best parts of the market-based system, because there are many good aspects of it, but reprioritize access, eliminating health disparities, uh, improving the quality of care for everyone, regardless of where you live or your race or ethnicity. I think that's going to have to be sorted out. We need a roadmap to get there. Let me ask you one final question before we wrap up our time together. I asked you to, to think about your moments of pride and your surprises. Let me just be a little bit more broad. What do you wish you knew then that you know now? And what are your first impressions of retirement? Well, I'll tell you, Tom, as I think about looking back on my career and the decisions that I'm not proud of, uh, in retrospect, I wish I had redone they almost always come back to uh, whether or not we did enough to serve patients. I'll tell you one, one uh, particular patient story when I was at UC Irvine, uh, which had a very strong gynecologic oncology program. We had a patient come into the emergency department. Uh, she was bleeding. And uh, it was clear that she had some kind of a oncologic issue. But this woman was covered by Medi-Cal, uh, limited scope, which meant she was undocumented. And under the rules of Medi-Cal, your only responsibility in that case is to treat and discharge and uh, tell this person to go find a clinic that can help you. Well, that decision came before me and I said, yes, do that. Follow the law, treat her as a Medi-Cal limited scope, and uh, we'll do the right thing by our finances. And here I am, it's got to be, you know, 25 years later, and that decision haunts me because I violated my own rule. I wasn't doing what was in the best interest of the patient. 
And I'm sure that she went out, tried to find a clinic and had no success and probably succumbed uh, to her cancer uh, much earlier than she might have otherwise. And so those, when you think back over a long career, it's, was I aggressive enough in uh, mandating changes that might reduce a medical error or helping patients at every turn? I do spend time talking to my healthcare colleagues about you know, what's the goal here? Is it to be the hospital with the biggest balance sheet, the biggest uh, shareholder return for health plans? You know, what's your, what's your big goal here? And it kind of gets to your point a little bit earlier, Tom, that I think our goal needs to be, how do we improve the health of the communities that we're privileged to serve? And how do we make payroll and cover the cost of new drugs and supplies and so forth? But how do we really improve things? And when I look back, it's my failure in those areas that, uh, that uh, I still think about. Well, you're very gracious for sharing that. And I'm a little short of breath at your candor and your sincerity. And I tell you that I know you well enough uh, that you don't have very many of those uh, regrets in your career. And the fact that you're 25 years later thinking about that lady says everything about you. I always like to close our conversations in a kind of an offbeat way. And I think folks just got a chance a minute ago to, to get to know you in a way that they may not have known you before. So let me do that now with a smile on our face. I understand that you and my two grown daughters share something in common. They each played in wind symphonies and they played in their college marching bands, Katie at Illinois and Kelsey at Notre Dame. But they, unlike you, never contemplated going pro. So can you tell us a little bit about your near brush with a musical career that might have robbed healthcare of one of its great thinkers? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I played trombone uh, from uh, middle school through high school, honor bands, all that kind of stuff. And then when I went to UCLA, I uh, played symphony orchestras, uh, jazz bands, pit orchestras for all the theater productions, as well as the marching band. And actually, I was on the varsity band, as we called it, that watched a few national championships along the way. That was in the end of uh, John Wooden's era. So I had a great career that way. I was a good trombone player, and I was encouraged by a couple of people to apply to do studio work, which is how you made money in Hollywood at that time if you were a trombone player. And I knew I was good, but I also knew that I wasn't great. And the best gigs always went to the people who had been doing it for a while and knew everybody. And I just knew I was going to have to spend hours alone in a practice room practicing my double tonguing and vibrato. And I just felt like that wasn't the career for me. So I don't know if it was a near brush with going pro musically, but I did consider it briefly. But I always knew there was something else, something bigger. And uh, I didn't know what it was at that time. I had no knowledge when I graduated college that I would be going into a healthcare career. But I have to say it turned out well for everybody, including all the people who would have had to have listened to me. Uh, in uh, those various orchestras. <laughs> well, thankfully, thankfully for healthcare in America, you decided against the uh, career in a, a jazz ensemble, but it's to our great benefit. You know, Mark, it's been almost 30 years uh, since I first got to know you back at UCLA. And if someone were to ask me, can you describe Mark Larratt and his 
career to me. The term that I would use to describe you, and it's one of admiration, is is calm statesmanship. I've been thinking about that in anticipation of our chat today. And you've always struck me as someone for whom self-promotion was never on the table. You weren't the loudest guy out there trying to breathe all the air in every room, but you were a calm statesman for the industry. And I consider it a great privilege of mine to have spent the largest stretch of my own career working with what I call the smartest people in healthcare. And for nearly three decades now, I've always left any time spent with you smarter for it. So thank you very much for taking time to be with us and for letting folks get to know you a little better. Tom, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. Thank you.